You are listening to Keystone's Stock Talk Podcast, episode 129. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week, we start with a case four debate on a unique Canadian small cap, Quarter Hill Inc., symbol QTRH on the TSX, a Canadian company that's focused on intellectual property and the intelligent transportation systems industry. It is a cash-rich business with a success or failure basically tied to the management's ability to successfully navigate M&A or merger and acquisition activity, as well as a substantial judgment in a lawsuit against Apple. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we answer a listener question on Chemtrade Logistics Income Fund, symbol CHE.UN on the TSX, which provides industrial chemicals and services to customers in North America and the world. The company looks to have an attractive dividend yield of over 13%, but it was recently cut. We let you know if it is now sustainable. Our dog of the week is CloudMD Software and Services, symbol DOC on the TSX Venture, a company which is helping digitize the delivery of healthcare by providing patients access to all points of their care from their phone, tablet, or desktop computer. The stock is down 35% from its highs in October and of about 320. We let you know why it has dropped. Let's get into the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Aaron and Brennan. How are you two doing just ahead of Christmas? Hello, gentlemen. I'm, I'm doing well. Doing well. How about you guys? Good to hear. Good to hear. How about uh, you, Ryan? Trees are all up, right? Uh, trees up at your end, Aaron? Yeah, I think, I think we, we had ours up a couple weeks week. ago, actually. We were a little, yeah. little early to the party, so... Well, there's not as much to do, right? So you can't get out as much. So you might as well put up the tree early this year. It's good to see. Now, we, we're going to pull out and... This week, we're going to do a case four debate to start. Um, we're going to do it on Quarter Hill Inc. I'm going to take both the for and against case. So I'll be doing both of them in my world. That guarantees I'm going to stay undefeated this week. And my co-hosts will be voting on whether they would buy the stock or not at present. But to get ready for next week, we have a debate uh, case four debate on Uber and DoorDash. So Uber versus DoorDash. Um, I'm going to flip a coin to see which of uh, Aaron or Brennan gets Uber or DoorDash. We're going to say Uber is heads and DoorDash is tails. So who wants heads or tails? Well, I'll take the I'll take the flip. So whatever it lands okay, on. Okay, whatever comes I'll up, take. you'll take it. That, that's right. Yeah. Okay. We got heads. So that's Uber? That is Uber. I believe Ooh. that's what I said. Woo-hoo. What were you hoping I for, smell- Brennan? 
Oh, uh, Uber, definitely really? Uber. I, I smell, uh, I smell a victory coming my way. Oh. So, uh, oh, famous out, last words. We'll see how that. Aaron's got a week to prepare now, so That's I true. wouldn't, you know. I'm shaking I, I over here. I know Brennan needs. <laughs> he looks like he's. I don't know Brennan if you should be. Win I'm in still, the column, so. Exactly. I was just gonna say. I don't know if you should be shaking. I'm looking forward to that next week, though. I mean, those are two. Um, you know, rather hot companies, topical companies, DoorDash just coming to the market. Um, you know, not direct competitors. Uber has obviously its full rideshare business, but DoorDash, they compete in that delivering of uh, uh, restaurant food to their door. So we'll see uh, which one comes out ahead. Uh, we're going to start off, too, by looking at a National Post article came out uh, about a week ago. It's entitled, Mind-Blowing Liberal Spending Spree, A Massive Ripoff of Future Generations. And the byline here is the cost of servicing the debt is as low as it's ever been right now. But that doesn't mean that taxpayers are obliged, not, aren't obliged to pay it off, just that they will never stop paying it off. So... Uh, some background here about 10, 12 days ago, the liberal government uh, provided a, the federal liberals provided a financial update, not a budget. They really haven't done that this year, just really outlining more money that they are shoveling out during the current pandemic. Now, there was very little detail, and the sums here we're talking about are so mind blowing. It's $621 billion in government spending so far this year. Now, again, the article references this. I agree. The liberals could be excused for their mistakes in the early kind of fog of the pandemic as everything hit so fast. Um, the, the article notes a veteran policymaker in Ottawa said that it, it realized that Ottawa could be either fast or accurate, but not both when they came out with the benefits and subsidies. Now, benefits were, though, so absurdly generous that household income rose 11%, even as GDP tumbled to start this year uh, when the pandemic hit. Yet, uh, given the chance to realign benefits closer to lost income, the Liberal government doubled down, increasing the money available under the wage subsidy and dispersing an extra $1,200 in Canada child benefits to 1.6 million families. Now, these mistakes, many would argue, are presented as virtues. Now, there's something called, and Christia Friedland, I believe, has coined this. They're calling it preloaded stimulus into the bank accounts across Canada. Now, now this is, to me, the idea of this preloaded stimulus is one of the more ridiculous things I've ever heard. The finance minister and deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, has been openly talking about this. Now, firstly, the notion that this was in any way planned, like Trudeau and his cabinet were sitting there as the pandemic hit saying, you know what we need? What we really need here is to print a bunch of money, take on historic debt loads, give it to the public, too, too much money to the public in an effort to preload their wallets with cash to be used to bring us out of this pandemic on the other side with a vengeance. I mean, just to think that that was actually going on is ridiculous. Now, second, now they want or, you know, the federal government wants Canadians to start spending. The finance minister actually went on BNN Bloomberg and asked viewers to suggest some possible ways to unleash what she called the massive amount or mountain of excess cash some Canadian households and businesses are sitting on as a result of the pandemic. Now, I would call this savings to her, but uh, so 
I, I do understand that they're very happy and Ottawa's very happy to get their hands on it. Now, the estimates here for how much money is they would say is being hoarded um, with Deloitte saying it's around $200 billion by the end of the year. They predict that much will be hoarded by Canadians. Now, with such astronomical figures, the federal government noted in its fall economic statement that tapping into this savings could help stimulate an economy that's been hard hit by COVID-19. Her actual statement on BNN was, if people have any ideas on how the government can act to help unlock that preloaded stimulus, she is very interested. That's what Freeland said. Now, I have a great deal of ideas how any of my savings will be spent, and it has very little to do with Ottawa. I don't know how you two uh, you know, feel about that, but I'd like to get your comments now. Well, it's understanding. I mean, if you're if 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 you're in a situation where the the economic outlook is so precarious that the government feels the need to um, enact all these stimulus measures and put all this money in the hands of Canadians, it makes sense if you're a family. It's a responsible decision not just to take that money and run out and spend it because you you may need it. Um, down the road, uh, depending Call on a rainy day, right? Certainly, yeah. certainly. So it, it makes sense, I, I suppose, from the perspective of government. If they just plan on continuing to hand it out, then it uh, it doesn't um, it doesn't matter if you spend what they give you in the near term. But I mean, the problem that I have with this, and I understand the need, particularly when the pandemic hit, people were all businesses were being closed, or most businesses were being closed. People were told not to leave their home. So I understand the need to provide financial support to those people. I mean, you can't tell people not to go to work um, and then not provide some type of support. So they, they yeah, they and that's what the Canadian emergency wage subsidy was for, for at least uh, for companies on the company side of it to to give them around 70%. And I think we should talk about this in another segment and investigate this. And like, there was a definite need. If you're going to tell people they can't do business, if you want to keep those employees on, you got to give them some subsidies. However, three, six, tw- you know, now it'll be, at some point it'll be 12 months in. Uh, those policies have to be changed to better align because like we go through every company in Canada. There's 3,500 public companies. And I'm looking at right now, a number of income statements where yes, revenues were down 15% from last year, but because of CEWS, because of the wage subsidy, they are more profitable, these businesses, than they were at this time last year in the quarter last year. And the point of this year. is not to be more profitable. No. The point is so that you no. don't have to lay people off and, and essentially businesses die and shut down and, and just go out of business permanently. So yeah, my, it's my ridiculous. concern right now is what, how much of this really has to do with helping people in emergency and how much of it is really just about popularism. Um, yeah. how, much is, how much of it is just about buying people's votes. I mean, once you get people uh, accustomed to taking your money, you can tell them that if they vote for somebody else, then that that money fountain is going to dry up, right? Um, so that's my concern. And you know, the way that the government operates through the business cycles, it's 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 essentially based somewhat on an economic theory called Keynesian economics. Um, John Maynard Keynes, he was an e- economist. Uh, he he became very famous during the Great Depression. His economic policies, in fact, helped get the United States out of the Great Depression. And essentially, what he was saying was that during uh, during a recession or a depression, the government should reduce taxes and uh, engage in fiscal stimulus. So spend a lot of money, um, increase their debt in order to drive up demand to get 
the country out of that depression or out of that recession. And that's what they do. That's what governments tend to do in the West. But the issue is that part of Keynesian economics is that once the economy recovers and starts doing well again, you're supposed to do the opposite. You're supposed to ratchet up the tax rate. You're supposed to reduce the spending in order to reduce the debt. And that's where that's where politicians like Trudeau don't seem to don't follow the model because previous to the pandemic, I mean, the Canadian economy, granted, it wasn't great in a lot of regions, but for Canada's economy, I mean, it was really about as good as you can generally expect it to be in most years. And Agreed. we were talking and he about ran a massive deficit in those times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We were talking about stimulus and increasing the debt and running huge deficits even during that time. So at what point do you, in a Trudeau government, at what point do you actually say you want to know what I think the economy is good enough that we're going to start? We're going to start trying to manage the deficit. I, I don't really yeah. see that happening under him. I don't. I don't because there's always going to be a segment of the population that isn't doing great, even in the best of times, right? And it's it's if you really want to follow the model, you have to follow it on both sides, on recession and on and and on expansion. Um, and if you and don't, I, do that, I blame. You know, I blame the Trudeau government, but I blame the people that continually get put their hands out and want to take that because it's easier. I mean, there's a great quote in this article saying giving away money is the easiest thing to do in government. Collecting it is less easy. And the hardest thing is to l deliver services efficiently. Now, like just shoveling more money off the back. Now that may get you more votes, but if I mean, I worry for, and I'm sure Aaron does, for our children for the future because eventually this has to get paid off. Yes, interest rates are historically low now. I mean, that's a positive in the fact that the debt servicing payments aren't as high as they would be. But if you see a 1%, 2% increase in those, I mean, we're not nowhere near historic rate levels. Like if you got back to historic levels, which I'm not saying is going to happen anytime soon, the amount of debt burden would be here. It just... It just is leading to a path for higher taxation, uh, wealth trans transfer tax. We could see something like that, which is to me like estate taxes and all that are rather disgusting because those are money individual. You're Canadians essentially you're taxing responsible decisions. Money that's right. Been so you're going to tax yeah. somebody yes. um, over fifty percent now, and at it's the already top been taxed. <laughs> yeah, when they're making the money, and then you're going to tax yeah. them when they're spending the money, and you're going to tax them. When they're not spending the money, it's just it's 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 that double taxation. It's it's like you're you're double dipping, right? Yeah, um, and that those type of things, I think, like nobody wants to leave Canada. I'm not going to be fear monitoring here or anything like that. But those type of things disgust people to the point where they start to look at things like that, and that's your and they that's start, a start slippery to spend slope more time, less time, like smart innovative, industrious people start to spend more energy and more resources yeah. trying to figure out how they can avoid some of that taxation as opposed to just going out and innovating and creating value for the economy and making money. I mean, if you're at, at a certain point, it becomes, I mean, right now, I think the top tax bracket in Canada is 52%, I believe, federal and provincial here in BC anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's over 50%. Well, I mean, at what point does it just not make sense to to put in the effort to make that marginal extra dollar if so much of it is is not going into your pocket yeah there just doesn't seem to be a great deal of very smart fiscally responsible financial people that are 
that have the ear of the government today and it and it really does worry me and uh i mean you can be liberal socially and which is all great it's fine like we are i mean i am but um I just want some fiscal responsibility in my government. And we just see people shoveling off money with no plan in sight on how to pay any of it back other than, oh, interest rates are low and we need to do this and this stimulus will create business. I mean, it's just such such short-term thinking and it's such... And it's going to... it has to lead to increased taxation in a country that is already taxed enough, in my opinion. So there's our soapbox for today. Uh, we'll probably talk more about that. Definitely the CEWS, the, the Canadian Employment Wage Subsidy, as we go through many Canadian companies. Canadian companies that we look at, all these companies as investments for our clients on an annual basis. Some of them paying out dividends and and some of that money that they're getting to pay these dividends came from the federal government. None of that makes any sense. But uh, at some point, somebody has to be the adult in the room and step in and say, this is not what this plan was intended for. I don't see that happening right now. All right, so let's move on to our case for, case against segment. We're going to do it on Quarter Hill Inc., symbol QTRH on the TSX. I have both. I'm going to ask uh, Brennan, can I get you to um, do the one minute timing on both of them? Yep. One second here. here. One okay, second. Okay. So Quarter Hill Inc. is symbols QTRH on the TSX. Trades around $2.67. A $300 million market cap. And Quarter Hill is a Canadian company. Like we said, it focuses on intellectual property or IP and in intelligent transportation systems industry. So two, it's kind of a patent troll in one area and it has an operating business that is in the ITS or intelligent transportation industry. Uh, its future, however, seems to be increasingly tethered to its ability to successfully navigate M&A or mergers and acquisitions, as well as a substantial judgment that it should see but may not see it uh, from Apple. Now let's enter into those two things. I'm going to look at the case for Quarter Hill. Are you ready, Brennan? Yeah, um, I'll count you in. Start on go. So three, two, one, go. Number one, strong growth. Q3 revenues jumped 301% to $88 million compared to $21.9 million in Q3 2019. Number two, a great balance sheet. Quarter Hill has a fortress balance sheet with $135.7 million in net cash. That's $1.14 per share, equating to 43% of its market cap. Number three, potential cash windfall. Additionally, the company's Wyland subsidiary was recently awarded a final judgment by Apple for $108.98 million us number four low valuations based on a trailing basis and an excellent balance sheet the stock looks cheap trading at 12 times reported earnings with an ev to ebitda ratio of 3.1 number five m a growth the future looks bright with a large cash war chest management is seeking cash producing tech forward businesses to increase the company's recurring revenue base over the long term that's why the case for quarter hill looks good four seconds to go nice you're good okay uh so i will let that go there we go okay so are you gonna are you ready for the uh the against yeah. side of it okay Case so against. three two one go Number one, lumpy revenues and limited recurring base. While revenues jumped 301% in the latest quarter, they remain roughly flat for the nine-month period. 
and just 6.1% of those revenues were recurring and recurring revenues were actually down over the first nine months. Number two, profitability is a mirage. Profits were largely from the sale of a business unit and one-time licensing fees. Number three, poor management track record. While there is a huge cash balance, assets are hardly cheap at present and management has shown little ability to purchase, integrate, and grow recurring cash flow from acquisitions in the past. Number four, operationally, the business is barely profitable. The intelligent intelligent systems division made roughly 4.4 cents for the nine-month period, and operationally, the stock trades at 50 times earnings. The corporate costs included, with these included, the company actually lost money, plus the Apple appeal. Apple has appealed that cash reward, so that is not a certainty going forward. Okay, well, you just got onto the bar there. Um, Good job. Um, so shall, Brennan, <laughs> I, I think you can judge first. Yeah. Yeah. So you start. I'll start it off. Um, I mean, when you, when you started the four case, uh, I thought, wow, this, this really is looking good, but, uh, you know, great growth, great valuation. Um, but I think what it comes down to is, you know, in the against, uh, where you were saying that, uh, you know, lumpy revenue and the profit was largely or the recent profitability was largely from an asset sale. So, you know, um, it, in in adjusted EBITDA terms, I would say that, uh, you know, that uh, valuation ratio or multiple that EV to EBITDA multiple probably wouldn't be that low, um, you know, and uh, yeah, not, you know, they're, they're not very profitable. And, and with that asset sale, I think that I would have to go for the against case. I mean, everything did sound, you know, nice and shiny off the bat, but uh, again, uh, it all comes down to profitability, um, you know, consistent revenue growth. Uh, you know, you were saying that those recurring revenues are down uh, and as well, just that asset sale. I'd have to actually look and see how much um, that asset sale, uh, you know, went into the the bottom line profitability. But, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna have to say I'd be going against the company. Okay, Aaron, done, well, your turn. Anybody who's been following my research and commentary for any period of time knows that I love companies with lumpy revenue, no profitability, and lack of management track record. <laughs> Done buying right now. And, and, that's and it. yes, I'm being sarcastic. That's that's basically the polar opposite <laughs> of the type of company that I like to invest in. And uh, Quarter Hill has been around for a while. Uh, it was before it was Quarter Hill. It was a company called Wyland. So it's it's had a lot of time. Um, just seems like it's been a bit of a hodgepodge of different businesses, but nothing's really been consistent. Ryan, you basically laid it out and you're against. Um, I don't care what it looks like on the outside. I don't care what somebody can say about the future potential or, or, or you know, the, the strategy of the company, the, the potential of the strategy of the company. It, you know, the lack of financial performance, the lack of consistency, uh, it would definitely be a no for me. Yeah, it's crazy because you can present that case with this, you know, the Q3 revenue numbers, like 88 million up from 21.9 looks tremendous, highly profitable in that quarter. But if you look at the nine month results, it starts to balance out where revenue is basically flat. I mean, there's a tremendous balance sheet here and they could have a windfall that adds almost, you know, it almost doubles the net cash position of the business. The issue for us is, and we know the company well, as we recommended a company called uh, International Road Dynamics that this business bought. Um, it was great for our clients. We made about 80 plus percent in about a three month period after buying that business or recommending our clients buy that business. 
But that is about the only business that we have ever seen them purchase that had relatively consistent cash flow. And we do believe they bought them at too much of a premium at that point. But the other businesses they bought, they'd either other or either sold off or just they've been sitting on cash and not been able to buy consistent cash flow. And if you look at what the operating business is doing, um, even without including the huge corporate costs, really, that this company has, uh, it's not profitable operationally just based on that ITS division right now. And if you took out the corporate cost, it would still be trading about 50 times earnings. Now, you can take the cash out and maybe it's about, you know, 25 times in that range. But still, given the fact that management has not shown the ability to accretively buy recurring cash flow, um, you're just betting on management in this situation, taking that cash and redeploying it. Now, if we had a astute management team involved with this company and they were able to go out, like I'll give you an example, Enge House is a business that we've recommended for 10 plus years that's had, you know, at the start had 100 million like this company has in cash flow and has gone out and purchased great businesses that have grown its cash flow without diluting existing shareholders over time. They've ratcheted up the margins on those businesses, increased the cash flow, milked that cash flow to then go out and buy another business for growth and do that, rinse and repeat over and over. In this business, we have not seen that at all. We have not seen management's ability to do that. Uh, they have that lumpy cash coming in that they could do that type of uh, acquisition strategy without diluting in in, in uh, Quarter Hill. It just they haven't executed on it. So why would we buy a business when we've seen management continually to not continually not be able to perform in a way that would increase shareholder value over the long term? So we're not going to recommend Quarter Hill, despite a great cash position and a great last quarter. So let's move to our Your Stock Our Take segment. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock. In a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. It's a question comes in from Troy V. Email. He said, Chemtrade was promoted as a solid dividend income producer in a stable, boring industry by another stock picking service. I am enjoying the monthly income even though the share price was cut in half. What are your thoughts? Uh, there's a lot of news about redemption of convertible unsecured subordinate debentures. Can you explain what this means? Brennan, you've been tasked with answering that question. I sure have. So again, Chemtrade Logistics Income Fund, C-H-E.un on the TSX, uh, currently trading at a price of around $5.50, has a market cap of approximately $516 million and a yield of about 11.6%. So a very nice yield there. Uh, Chemtrade Logistics provides industrial chemicals and services to customers in North America and the world. And the company has three business segments, uh, sulfur products and performance chemicals comprising about 30% of revenue, uh, water solutions and specialty chemicals comprising of about 35% of revenue, and electrochemicals comprising of about 35% of revenue again. Uh, so each segment making up about a third of the business. Um, so... 
Uh, a few key points here is the company is considered an essential service and has uh, actually has a trailing yield of about 13.7%. Uh, but as Ryan said in the intro of the podcast, in March of this year, the company cut its distribution by 50% because of the uncertainty surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, which is understandable, uh, but not a great signal from management going forward. Now, to answer Troy's second question there on the redemption of its convertible debt, during the third quarter of 2020, Chemtrade redeemed its 2014 5.25% debentures at a total aggregate redemption price of about $100 million, which is equal to the principal amount of the debentures uh, redeemed. Uh, and the company funded this redemption with funds from its 2020 8.5% debentures that it issued as well as with its existing credit facilities. So essentially all this means is that the company is refinancing its older debt with new debentures and existing credit facilities. Uh, so nothing to be too concerned about, but I will touch on that a little later on in the conclusion here. So just looking at the company's financial results for Q3 2020, revenue has decreased uh, about 12.5% uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, to about 350 million compared to the same quarter last year. Uh, 12 trailing month adjusted funds from operations was approximately 161 million, a decrease of 8% from the same 12 trailing month period last year. And currently the company is trading with a trailing enterprise value to adjusted funds from operation multiple of about 12 times, which I would say places the company fairly valued to slightly overvalued considering the decrease in the company's growth rate its lack of growth in the past and recent cutting of its dividend by 50%. And just looking at the sustainability of that dividend, it has a 12 trailing month payout ratio of 49% out of uh, AFFO, which is healthy. And just looking at their balance sheet, it is pretty levered with a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 4.8 times and a debt to equity ratio of two. Uh, and the company did have guidance, but they pulled it uh, and they just provided a couple comments uh, after they pulled it saying that uh, revenue should be similar to that of 2020. Um, now to conclude here, first off, I can see why Troy likes the company as it pays an attractive yield, which appears sustainable at its current level. But I can say that it is certainly a dividend stock and not much of a growth stock as even in a normalized environment, revenue had been decreasing. So right now, considering its enterprise value to AFFO multiple of about 12 times and its lack of growth, I believe the stock trades near or slightly above fair value. Now, regarding its recent debt redemption, the key takeaway here, in my opinion, is that the company appears to be refinancing at a higher rate, considering that it is funding some of the redemption with 8.5% debentures, showing that the company's financial position has decreased since issuing its 5.25% debentures in 2014 and has less favorable access to capital. And on that note, the company is highly levered as both of its leverage ratios are higher than I would personally like to see them uh, and would be something to keep an eye on if you are an investor, but by no means do I think the business is in imminent trouble. So all in all, for the dividend, I believe the stock is attractive, but considering Keystone is primarily looking for dividend growth stocks, it is not a stock that we would recommend at this time. But you know, if you are holding it just for the dividend, possibly not a bad stock to keep in your portfolio. I definitely hold this, uh, you know, rather than some high yielding oil and gas companies. It's a good, good breakdown there, Brandon. And I'm, I'm familiar with the, with Chemtrade myself. We were actually 
quite positive on the company several years back, but unfortunately it's it's the last couple of years here, there's just been really no positive news uh, for the company. And, and, you know, unfortunately with the dividend cut, it really makes it, uh, you look at it, it's, it's probably fairly well positioned right now to maintain the dividend, but whenever you see a company cut by such a, a large amount, what was it, a 50% cut, I believe, it certainly, yeah. uh, it certainly has to worry you about what uh, what the future of the dividend is going forward and the stability of the business. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunately been been a big disappointment for most investors. Yeah, no, that's a good summary. And um, I think that that will segue poorly, but it will segue nevertheless into our next segment, our weekly dog. Well, I guess it does segment as uh, the company has been a bit of a dog. From our stars and dog segment, it's time for this week's dog. <laughs> It's CloudMD Software and Services, symbol DOC on the TSX Venture. Aaron has been tasked with that company. Take it away. Excellent. Thank you, Ryan. So CloudMD, uh, current price is $2.05. It's a $335 million market cap company. And what they do is they help, they're helping to digitalize the delivery of healthcare by providing patients access to all points of their care from their phone, tablet, or desktop computer. So this is an e-health company. E-health has obviously been a very hot theme in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the silver linings of a tragedy like COVID-19 is that it does force us to examine uh, how key sectors like the healthcare operate and look for ways to make them more efficient and better able to respond to future emergencies. We had we had CloudMD as a year stock our take back in July. At the time, the stock was almost brand new to the markets. Uh, and for the first several months afterwards, after becoming public, the stock was on an absolute tear. A lot of hype behind the eHealth theme. However, recently, this strong trend has reversed and the stock is down 35% from its October high of 320 per share. The Q3 results, Q3 financial results were released on November 30th. The company reported record revenue of 3.4 million for the quarter compared to 2.2 million in the same quarter of the previous year. That's an increase of 55%. Revenue generated from the SaaS or software as a service model uh, was uh, 500,000 compared to 400,000 in Q3 of the previous year for an increase of about 22%. The company reported a net loss in Q3 of 2.7 million compared to a net loss of 800,000 in the previous year. And during the quarter in Q3, CloudMD did announce seven acquisitions, which it believes will add 19 million in annual revenue to the company. They also believe that they're on track for annualized revenue run rate of 50 million and improved adjusted EBITDA. It appears that the company was able to report some positive developments in Q3, but unfortunately this has not helped the stock price. The key metric that we are looking for to validate the business model is profitability, and we don't see any clear signs that this will be achieved in the foreseeable future. The revenue growth is fantastic. The target of 50 million in annual revenue is also very compelling. Uh, the problem, however, is that the higher revenue will not necessarily translate into better profit margins. We'll also note that the SaaS subscription revenue was only about 15% of total revenue in the quarter and grew at half the rate of total revenue year over year. 
It's really the SaaS subscription revenue uh, that we're paying close attention to. It's higher margin and really where software investors will assign a substantially high, higher valuation multiple over time. Uh, we, we certainly like the long-term potential of the e-health space. It's an area that we're looking very closely at right now, but we believe that the majority of e-health companies are very early stage, still unproven, and therefore higher risk. So we're still on the sidelines with CloudMD right now. For us, it's not investable, but we do monitor it very closely. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. The company you know, has that high level of revenue growth that we like, but we are very concerned about the fact that right now that SaaS area of the business was only 15%. And we noted that when we passed and looked at the company in the past, it's not growing at a tremendous rate right now. Uh, that is where you're going to get the premium valuations, like Aaron said, from uh, if we don't see that growing at a higher rate and becoming a bigger part of the business, uh, we don't see the company being able to sustain premium valuations over time. And that's what we would be looking for in a business. So we'll continue to monitor it closely. Certainly, uh, the revenue growth has piqued our attention. That's going to close out our show for this week. Um, I'd like to thank my co-host for hosting with me. Keep your questions coming in to our Your Stock, Our Take segment, as well as our Ask Us Anything. And as well, you know, keep those questions coming in. If you got two stocks that you want us to debate against each other, hopefully they're in similar industries. Uh, we love doing those debates and we'll uh, uh, keep doing our case for and case against segments going forward. Uh, I'd like to tell everybody to stay safe out there and wish you all profitable investing. Thank you. Profitable investing. Thanks, everyone.